testing themselves are problematic. First of all, you are uh, putting pressure on, on students and teachers. You're putting, uh, you know, the pressure on so teaching has become teaching to the test. You know, another thing is that because only two subjects uh, in the U.S. have been valued, you know, reading and math, and uh, it has really already. Taking out time for students in other areas to discover their interest, to discover the possibility. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Well, today's guest is Yang Zhao. He is an internationally renowned scholar serving as the Foundation Distinguished Professor at the School of Education and Human Services at the University of Kansas and a professor in educational leadership at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education in Australia. His work focuses on technology and globalization and its impact on education. Uh, We first met um, at the University of Oregon, where he was the presidential chair and director of the Institute for Global and Online Education at the College of Education. He's published over 100 articles and 30 books, including his latest, Duck and Cover, Confronting and Correcting Dubious Practices in Education, which is co-authored by fellow uh, Kansas University professor Rick Ginsburg. Um, And in it, he and Ginsburg explore the ill-informed ideas and policies that continue to plague our school systems um, and how we can rethink them. Uh, I want to talk about the new book. First of all, let me just welcome you, uh, Young. It's so great to have you here. I have so much that I want to talk to you about. <laughs> Thanks, welcome. Ed. Yeah. Thanks uh, I, yeah, I want to talk to you about the, the new book. But first, you know, I was doing a little additional research this morning and found a really interesting article on you um, in the Washington Post. Um, that talks about another book um, that you uh, co-author, but it's really about you, which is Improbable Possibilities. And there was a statement that really uh, spoke to me that I I wanted to read uh, from the book. And it says that the American myth of rugged individualism, the belief that humans succeed against heavy odds solely through their individual talent, determination, and intelligence, obscures the role that the interaction of genes, environment, and chance play in shaping a person's path to success or failure. And, um, you know, there's been, we always talk about nature and nurture, but this whole idea of chance is a a whole nother concept um, that, and I love that you go into it. And I just wanted to chat with you about that this morning, especially as it related to your own story. Uh, because you were born in a, in a you know, in a village uh, with, um, you know, very little promise, but there's so many things that happen in terms of uh, the historical moment in which you were born and um, that uh, I just love to delve into a little bit. So let's talk about that. Sure. Uh, well, thanks, Ed. Uh, again, it's so great to see you again. And this is just wonderful to have a chance to chat. I, I think in, in, in human life, we generally ignore the idea of chance. 
but what is chance, right? Chance is is basically um, you, when you take advantage of an opportunity, it becomes your chance. So suppose like everybody in my village had the same opportunity, but not many people took advantage of the same opportunity and they did not turn that into chance. Uh, the, the, you know, like the, the same thing like your your work in on, on student journalism. I think many people we have seen that as a possibility, but not many people dove into that. I, I think that that is really important. But also in in, in education, we like to think everybody is the the same. You know, maybe there's uh, some difference in nature, some difference in nurture, but how people take advantage of uh, what happens around them matters tremendously, and that is very hard to. To do research on because again we can do post facto research we can say oh yeah you did that you know uh, but at the same time how do we help our students or our children to take advantage and turn things into chance you know into something that they could explore and they could develop that would be powerful I think uh, that's the really very uh, sometimes almost accidental you know in many uh-huh. ways. What are the factors that you think have some children, uh, you know, uh, grab those chances and, and, and others not? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm gathering probably there's some research even about twins, you know, who have the same genetic disposition. But, um, you know, one may consider themselves more of an introvert and another one may consider themselves a, an extrovert. Well, I think, you know, uh, definitely. I, I, I think that there are like, for example, your, your personality and, but that also interacts with chance as well. <laughs> so, so the uh, the other so the other thing, like for example, you know your your ambition, uh, your motivation, and your self perception as well. Like for example, do, do you feel like uh, you are able to do certain things or you are not? That that really has tremendous impact. Yeah, yeah, sense of agency or self efficacy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you taught yourself to read. It's still fascinating to, to read. I mean, I'm going to go get this book. I, you know, there was an overview of it, like I said, in the, in the Washington Post. But you taught yourself to read. Um, you came from a village where, um, like I said, the, you know, the chances of you becoming a, you know, a world-renowned scholar were, were bleak. <laughs> yeah. um, can you share a little bit about that? And well, sure. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the village is, uh, you know, from just simple literacy perspective, it was completely illiterate, you know, is that, that uh, and uh, people truly were starving for food uh, in the 1960s, 1970s. So when I grew up there, um, people did die in my village uh, because of the lack of food. It's really famine, you know, all those things. And uh, it was really a horrible place. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Mao Zedong, you know, the, the leader of China at that moment, uh, who started the Cultural Revolution, which disrupted the economy, uh, but began to build uh, primary schools in the villages. So that's where I had an opportunity to go to school. And also, you know, jokingly, but not entirely, is that uh, my father kind of said, since you're so so poor at the, any of the village jobs, you know, why don't you go to school? You know, I was really bad at farming. So, so that was my disadvantage. So in many ways, actually, I, I want to just highlight, Ed, that uh, a lot of times, if you look at the future more positively, 
your weaknesses may become your strength. When you are not good at something, that may turns out to be an opportunity that you can take advantage of, and that becomes good. So I avoided, for example, Rainy being a good farm boy, which I couldn't be, which I wasn't. You know, so so I turned happened. It so happened. Mao Zedong began to build a school. I, I, you know, if there was no school, I probably would be the worst farmer in China. Mm. <laughs> Let's move to to your your uh, latest book um, that's coming out with Rick Ginsburg, Duck and Cover, and it really recounts, um, you know, some of the policies um, during the fifties and sixties that still sort of inform uh, policies today, and you, you take on some sacred cows. Um, you know, for example, let's start with standardized testing, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, what, where do we, where have we gotten it wrong here in the U S um, in our effort to, to really give kids the best education? Well, I think, you know, uh, Ed, uh, you know, we've been doing education reforms for decades, you know, for, for different things. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the big problem with the, uh, all these reforms is that uh, they have been playing with things that really don't matter. If you look globally speaking, not only the U.S., uh, our basic test scores have not changed much for the past 20 years, for the past 50 years, even the most basic reading and math. I think, uh, so we, we wrote this book, Rick and I wrote this book, really trying to expose some of the, the problems which was viewed as good, but if you examine them, they don't really produce much. You know, testing, as you said, is a good example. It's been adopted for in the U.S. You know, massively. I think the last uh, uh, twenty over twenty years now, it's become a standard for every student, every classroom. And but testing themselves are problematic. First of all, you are. Uh, putting pressure on, on students, on teachers. You're putting, uh, you know, the pressure on, so teaching has become teaching to the test, you know. Another thing is that because only two subjects uh, in the U.S. have been valued, you know, reading and math, and uh, it has really already taken out time for students in other areas to discover their interest, to discover the possibility, and also using test scores to judge students, to publish test scores, you're already defining students as you're not good. Schools should become a sanctuary for all students, no matter where they're from. If they can discover schools as a place, they can feel good, they can do good things, that they have potential, that is a much better education than a place that tells them you're no good compared to other people. You're below the state, state average. You're worse than other people. You know, nobody likes a place that keeps telling you you're not good, Ed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I have a belief in, in the work that we do with the Journalistic Learning Initiative, and a lot of it starts with middle schoolers. And that's when I, just through, through observation, discover that, uh, that kids, um, it's where kids start to collect beliefs about, uh, you know, what they can do and what they can't do. Like, I'm good at math or I can't write or whatever else. And they start to collect evidence for that to the point that by the time they're in high school, um, you know, they've convinced themselves that they actually have, um, you know, I guess what, you know, would be called a fixed mindset, <laughs> you know, compared yeah, to a yeah. gr- growth mindset, you know? Yeah. 
Um, I, you know, so this section of, of the book, part one, the, the title of the part one is dreams, fantasies, and nightmares. So you also talk about the achievement gap and our notion of there being an achievement gap. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because that's, that language has become so, um, you know, etched in, particularly as it relates to students of color. Um, you know, we yeah. see so much data that says that, you know, there's a, a gap. Oh, I think, you know, the, the um, achievement gap is almost a manufactured concept that f does more damage to the people rather than help them people. It, it started, actually, the term I started you know, during the, you know, the, the time people trying to maintain segregation, you know, mm -hmm. try to say, okay, look at this gap, you know, they, they cannot be mixed. It was one of the the, the reasons and now achievement gap has become the term to say we are going to close the achievement gap and you know we cannot close the achievement gap we have not closed the achievement gap for the past you know the several decades mm -hmm. and th the problem is is that you know uh we'll say i will say okay the kids you know in the, the white kids in the suburbs they're not going to stop and wait for the black kids you know in, in downtown houston to say yeah we'll, we'll just come up with the, something it, it, what do we need to do is not try to focus on what people cannot do, their deficit, is to focus on what they can do. I think, you know, this paradigm of looking at people's test scores and say they have a gap, we need to say, okay, that gap may exist, but does that gap matter? And mm. we need to look at what these kids, you know, they have, when they come to school, their, their resilience and their interest is different, you know, from the suburban kids. And so we need to focus on what they can do, especially when they come to school. And, uh, you know, the, the achievement gap is highly correlated with the uh, socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. And those socioeconomic status cannot be easily changed. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's a societal problem, not a school problem. But we have students coming in every day. We have to work with them. So just impose that deficit model on those students does not help at all. And some of the gaps don't even matter. Like, for example, you look at uh, um, the college entrance exam, like uh, the SAT, a ACT, for example. They really actually show a gap between, you know, we call the white and black and, and white and Hispanic, you know, or Asian and Hispanic and you know, all this. But does that gap matter? Because SAT does not, uh, you know, has not proven to be very influential on students' performance. So you have a, a, an artificial gap that exists, and people believe that gap, and then it directs people to close that gap, which is impossible. And therefore, you know, we we have a manufactured gap, which does not matter. You know, so so we need to rethink about that seriously to not focus on the gap, but focus on people's strength. And also in a new age, you know, right now we are in a new smart machine age. Our children can do a lot more than what school is trying to force them to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a wonderful series of books that you did um, called World Class Learners, which I really, really, um, you know, I, I, I really um, have taken a lot of value in, in uh, looking at. And it's really about infusing entrepreneurial thinking into schools. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I, you know, we hear so much about project-based learning, but you, um, you actually sort of coined the phrase uh, product-oriented learning. 
Yeah, Ed, that's why I admire your work on in journalism, because you are really asking students to produce authentic products. And, you know, the reason I did not quite like so-called project-based learning was really, number one, the project was often pre-selected by the teacher, mm. which does not have much meaning for students. For them, doing that is the about the same as doing uh, direct instruction. So students were not involved. Their agency, their passion were not involved. Second of all, I think the, the um, project-based learning does not teach students to identify problems. I think in your work, you know, I have to reference your work since I read your most recent book, uh, uh, you are asking students to identify the problems, mm -hmm. to understand what it means. I think identifying problems and then seek solutions to that problem matters tremendously in this new age. You have to be able to identify your own problem and the seek solutions to that. Mm -hmm. And third of all, what I, I did not quite like in the traditional project-based learning is collaboration. I really believe collaboration should be strength-based and passion-driven. That is, in the collaborative work, you develop your strength further. You try to become better, but not doing the same work. In our traditional project, students do the same work, you know, in the collaboration, in project-based learning. What we would like to do is, like in a group of five, for example, uh, even in your work, like you're writing a news piece, some people can do the interview, others can set up the equipment better, others manage the current better. You know, when you do the production, some people can do uh, a typesetting, some people can do the writing, some people can do promotion. People have different strengths and work should be strength-based. So I think entrepreneurial work is not for you to necessarily become a businessman, but for students to exercise their agency in various ways. And today, that is very possible with all this social media, with all this technology. I think we can do that. Students can become entrepreneurs who get to own their own learning. And, you know, I, I think a lot in terms of a shift in this direction, it's really going to require uh, rethinking how we train teachers, right? Because um, if we're still utilizing the same, um, you know, practices to train teachers, uh, we're not going to see this kind of innovation at the classroom level with students. Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's why, again, the work you and I when others are doing is very significant, is we mm -hmm. want to give examples. Changing education is a historical burden, you know, for everybody. It's so difficult to change. It's so very hard to change, but someone has to make the changes. You know, there are plenty of innovators, you know, who are making the changes. I think teachers, some teachers are making the changes. I don't think the systems can make the change. Systems, you know, uh, are there to maintain the status quo. I think we need individual teachers, individual school principals or superintendents to initiate the change. Well, look at you. You've done amazing things, uh, you know, in, in some schools, and that's good. You know, as long as some students are getting started, probably, you know, the impact has spread. Well, you know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned this because what we've discovered is that whenever there's a top-down approach to um, changing education, uh, in other words, the, you know, the, the school district or superintendent's office 
um, you know, issues a, a memo that they've purchased a new curriculum or something like that. Uh, you know, teachers roll their eyes because it's just the, you know, they perceive it as the latest flavor of the year and, um, and, and they don't, you know, they don't have any buy-in in it. So what we do is we approach teachers directly and, and with an opt-in approach and, and that makes them, it gives them agency to choose. And what we find is that one teacher takes our program in a school and, you know, all of a sudden it creates a buzz in the hallways. The students are talking about it. Other teachers are talking about it. And then other teachers want to uh, participate in, and it grows organically, um, you know, from uh, from teachers who have seen the, the benefit. And um, I just think it's a, just much more. First of all, it just honors teachers professionalism that they, you know, that they get to choose what they want to pursue. And we're just finding it's a much more effective way. Definitely. I think, you yeah. know, one of the problems with the education reforms that we've been conducting have deprived teachers of that autonomy, of their agency, of their professionalism. You know, there is a tremendous uh, uh, public distrust of teachers because of these reforms, you know. So we are putting test scores as that accountability measure to say, you know, we're going to hold you accountable as if teachers did not want to teach or are not able to teach. I think the room for teacher professionalism and autonomy has been drastically reduced. Yeah. I want to ask you um, about chat GPT and what your thoughts are about that. There's a lot of uh, a talk, you know, and concern. Um, uh, and I'm curious, you know, given your, um, your interest in technology, where you see that playing in terms of the future. Well, I think, you know, there are, um, I'm, I'm actually working on an article about that. I, I've, uh, I've been playing with it a lot. You know, first of all, we don't know where chat GPT and seminar artificial intelligence technology may take us. I think that's uh, getting all the you know, computer experts, education experts, philosophers to debate, you know, is this the end of humanity? But for sure, I know uh, chat GPT, and again, and many seminar tools, are very powerful. They are going to transform our human society again. What the internet has, you know, look, we cannot deny that. And uh, automation has you know, already displaced a lot of jobs, transformed how economy functions. I think ChatGPT will do that, which forces education to rethink about what we want to teach our children. If ChatGPT can pass the SAT, the GRE, or the LSAT, and that's the law school uh, entrance exam, easily, why are we preparing our children to simply, you know, pass tests? You know, it's yeah. that, that's that's question number two. If ChatGPT can do so well in writing, in doing computer pro computer programming, coding, in doing art, in doing website, and most of the traditional stuff, why are we teaching our children to do the same ChatGPT can do? So that calls into question of the content of our teaching. This is a great mm. time. I mean, unless we teach our children to be more human, we are going to be more mechanical. If you are mechanical, you're doing the same as ChatGPT, which can be replaced by machines, basically. Mm. The second thing, I think ChatGPT can be a very powerful way to help human beings, to train human beings into something better. You know, that, that is actually, I, I heard from uh, uh, Professor Chris Didi of Harvard, which we actually host a show called Silver Lining for Learning. And he was talking about, uh, I think he's, he's involved in the uh, National Science Foundation-funded uh, Center on 
on artificial intelligence and education. And he says that you know we should not treat this as、uh, artificial intelligence AI. Instead, we should treat them as IA, intelligent assistant.、Mm. So, how can teachers and students use ChatGPT as, you know, as、uh, um, IA, intelligent,、uh, you know,、uh, assistant? That can help us a lot. I was in Australia just last week. I saw actually one school has been doing that. They're informing their teachers how you could have ChatGPT to draw to generate drafts. Have students improve on them? Have students learn how to give prompt to ChatGPT? So we need to teach our students to say ChatGPT is here to help you, but you need to improve. You know, like I'm sure in writing news, writing reports. You know, I'm sure you can use ChatGPT to write, but you know that does not have a personal, unique Ed Madison kind of style, right? You, you, you right. need that style. You need to have put the humanity into that. I think education has to change. Young, this has been a fascinating conversation,、um, and、uh, I'm glad to know that you're actually still residing here in Eugene. So,、um, but thank you so much.、Uh, looking forward to talking with you offline and making plans to get together. Thank you for being a part of this、uh, series, and we're just、um, really inspired by all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Ed. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.